Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. I have here in the studio Dr. Craig S. Keener. He's our guest today. He's been giving some lectures here at Beeson Divinity School, and I'm just delighted to welcome you, Craig, to uh, this podcast. It's, it's an honor to be with you. Now, who is Craig S. Keener? We're going to find out a little bit about that. He is professor of New Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary. By the way, that's a seminary that has a strong connection to Beeson Divinity School through the shared legacy we have with Ralph Waldo Beeson, our great benefactor in the beginning of our school. Uh, and Dr. Keener has taught New Testament for a number of years. He's taught at Hood Theological Seminary. He's taught at Palmer Theological Seminary of Eastern University prior to going to Asbury in 2011. He is an established author, even though he looks very young to me. Uh, but he has written more than 15 books he has won the Biblical Studies Book Awards. That's a very prestigious award by Christianity Today. One of his best known and I think probably most used books is the IVP Bible Background Commentary on the New Testament. He's also written books on miracles. He's working on a four-volume commentary on Acts. Need I say any more? Uh, we're talking to a person who has really made a significant contribution to New Testament scholarship and uh, biblical learning. And we want to get into some of that as time permits, but I also wanted Craig to share with you a little bit about his own personal background, how he came to faith, and how his life has uh, evolved over these years. So would you do a little bit of that, Craig? Sure. I'm, I'm honored to. I, I didn't grow up in a um, family that went to church. We, we actually didn't talk about religion. Uh, I, I remember... When I was nine, I told my mother I didn't believe in life after death, and she told me she didn't either. But my parents didn't really try to influence me in religion, but uh, I I had decided pretty much by that point that I was an atheist and continued in that vein. Um, my grandmother, one day, she uh, tried to argue for the existence of God by reasoning back to a first cause to which I responded by postulating infinite regression, saying, well, maybe it just goes back through infinite time, which actually doesn't work in light of modern knowledge of physics, but, you know, I was probably 12 years old. I didn't know that. So I, I, uh, it was when I was 13 I started reading Plato and began to grapple with his questions that he raised about the immortality of the soul I didn't think he gave very good answers to the questions, but it got me thinking about life after death and about the meaning of life and how, according to my own worldview, I was nothing but an infinitesimally improbable coincidence. Or Life didn't make sense in that worldview, so I started trying to reconstruct it in a platonic worldview. But even though I didn't think Christianity was true, I gave it maybe a 2% chance of being true because it seemed to me of all the faiths that I'd heard about or read about, you know, 80% of the people in the U.S. claimed to be Christian, but I couldn't tell by how most of them lived that it made a difference in their lives. And I figured they didn't believe in it. Why would I believe in it? But just in case, 
eternity's a long time. And I began saying, if there's a God out there, please show me. I was still officially an atheist, but over time, I began to, to, to wonder. And one day, some fundamental Baptists stopped me on the street, and we argued for about 45 minutes. They, uh, they quoted scripture to explain to me how I could be saved, how I could be made right with God. And finally I told them, look, you guys, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I'm an atheist. I don't believe in the Bible. Why are you quoting that to me? I have a question for you. If there's a God, where did the dinosaur bones come from? If you ask a stupid question, you get a stupid answer. They said the devil put them there. Well, they, they weren't trained in paleontology. They weren't trained in apologetics. But they were, they, they gave me the, the gospel from the scriptures. They gave me the true gospel. And I, I walked off. But it wasn't like any other encounter or any other, anything I'd read about. I walked off convicted by the Holy Spirit. God's presence was so strong. I'd been wanting empirical evidence. God gave me instead the evidence of his presence. And by the time I, I got home, I, I, I went back and forth and back and forth. I couldn't understand it. It didn't make sense to me. But finally, the presence was so demanding. I realized God was in the room with me and he wasn't going to let me alone until I made a decision. And there was no way I was going to risk making the wrong decision. So finally I said, God, I don't understand how Jesus dying and rising from the dead can save me. But if that's what you say, I'll believe it. But God, I don't know how to be saved. So if you want to save me, you're going to have to do it yourself. And I, I felt something rushing through my body like I'd never felt before. I know this isn't what happens to everybody or even most people, but it's what happened to me. I jumped up real fast, and I was really scared because I didn't know what had happened. All I knew was I was now going to follow Jesus. I was going to be a Christian because God had shown me that he was real. And so I found a, 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 a New Testament, started reading that, and um, found a, a nearby church, and... Uh, they invited me back for the evening service, and I went back. And the pastor asked me if I was sure that I was saved. And I said, no, I don't know if I did it right. So he led me in, in a prayer that basically was what I'd done a couple days before. But this time I felt the same overwhelming sense of God's presence. And there was no way that I could, I could give God the glory of which he was due unless he gave me the words to do it. And it started coming to me in another language. I'd never heard of that before, didn't know what it was called, didn't know there was a name for it. But uh, I figured God knows lots of languages, so if he gives me praise for him in another language, why not? And, and um, started worshiping him in tongues. And that was the... Um, from my conversion to that, that was kind of the beginning of my Christian life. And then I had to, you know, all the kids in Sunday school, they knew more about the, the Bible than I did. So 
uh, I had to cram uh, <laughs> the next few years just trying to learn the Bible and um, eventually was reading um, at certain periods I would read 40 chapters a day because you do that you can get through the Bible once a month or through the New Testament every week and you start getting the framework of it in your in your mind and you know you, you, your memory verses start making sense in the broader context and Anyway, I'm well, I want to come back and pursue it a little bit. I want to just ask you a question right now because, Craig, you have a Ph.D. from Duke University, one of the finest research universities anywhere in the world. Uh, you've done top-rate New Testament scholarship, and yet you talk like you, you just talked. Uh, how do you do that? How do you manage that? Before my conversion, I was really an intellectual snob. <laughs> <laughs> if I worshipped anything, it was my mind. And yet my mind led me, led me astray. So actually, early in my Christian life, I was kind of anti-intellectual, <laughs> although I, was, I went about it in an intellectual way to justify my anti-intellectualism. But the time came, you know, you read the Bible very much, you see that God cares about our minds, you know, not just our feelings or, or so on. And it brought me back to the place where I could use my mind to serve God. But it needs to be in the right order. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Mm. And if I build on the wrong foundation, I'll end up with the wrong conclusion. But if I start with the fear of the Lord, then Proverbs says to seek wisdom, seek knowledge. Mm. And God gave me just such a hunger to, to learn about his word and to learn about the, the ancient context of his word. When I first started reading the, the New Testament, you know, there were some things I just knew automatically because of, you know, what I'd been reading in ancient sources before my conversion. Uh, and then there were some things where I misread them, like I was reading Paul in light of Plato at points where I shouldn't have been and probably came up with some semi-Gnostic views. But eventually, as I learned more, it was just wonderful being able to go deeper and deeper in God's Word. There were before my conversion, and, and for some time after my conversion, I wanted to be an astrophysicist. Mm -hmm. I, I loved science, and I, I loved physics because it was a way of learning truth about the universe. But if God has revealed himself to us with special revelation in Jesus Christ and in Scripture and in the history of, of all his mighty works in history, it made sense that if I was yearning for truth, that was the the most ideal place for me to look for it. Not to play down the other things. Those are valuable, but he gave me just such a love for Scripture and it eventually led through the Ph.D. I, I want to ask you a little bit because your, your pilgrimage of faith has led you into several denominational tributaries, let's call them that. Uh, after becoming a believer, uh, receiving the gift of speaking in tongues, you were uh, part of the Assemblies of God denomination and went to seminary, I think at the Assemblies of God uh, Seminary in Springfield, Missouri. Uh, along the way, somewhere you, you moved into a more Baptist orientation. Now you're teaching at an evangelical Wesleyan kind of school, Asbury, which make, me, makes you just perfect for Beeson because <laughs> we respect all these traditions. We have disagreements with all of them, but uh, we seek to focus on those things that bring us together in Christ. But say a little bit about how particularly moving into the uh, – from a Pentecostal denomination into a Baptist to a now Wesleyan context, though you still are 
an ordained minister in the Baptist tradition. Yes, and I, I think from what I said about tongues, you'll know that I never really rejected the Pentecostal mm-hmm. experience either. But uh, it, it wasn't for so much theological reasons. Well, one nice thing about being Baptist, though, if you're a biblical scholar and your local church likes you, you're all right because Baptists are congregational. So I could I could follow wherever the Bible led me, and so that's a definite advantage of being Baptist. But what led me into the, the Baptist tradition was especially uh, the kind of Baptist that it was, that I, I felt a real passion to work for ethnic reconciliation. And we had, uh, you know, most of the predominantly white churches I've been a part of always welcomed African Americans and, and anyone else. But it seemed to me that there was a, a more effective way, since I wasn't pastoring at the time, there was a more effective way I could work for ethnic reconciliation than just inviting people to come to my church. Since I wasn't pastoring, I could go to their church. And the Lord led me into a particular African-American church in Durham, North Carolina, uh, while I was doing my Ph.D. work. And the people were so gracious. And then my pastor started giving me reading material about, um, you know, um, the slave narratives and the autobiography of Malcolm X and so on. And over time, I began to realize, I mean, some of the same people who were welcoming me in this church were some of the same people who had been involved in sit-ins in North Carolina, who had had things poured on them while they were there. I mean, they they had suffered racism in in a dramatic way, and yet they welcomed me as their brother in Christ. And actually, what originally drew me to the black church and made ethnic reconciliation, I mean, I already cared about it, but made it so important to me was... I'd gone through a deep tragedy in my life. And the the white church that I'd been a part of, they were really good on some things. They had, they had some things all together, but they really didn't know how to deal with pain that well. But the African-American Christians, they took me in. They knew how to, they knew how to deal with pain, and they, they nurtured me back to wholeness. And so I felt I really owed them a great debt of love, and they became my, my family, so to speak. That's a beautiful story, and I, I think it relates to maybe the story of your own marriage. And tell us a little bit about that, because that's a part of the piece of the whole that you're describing. I actually had a close African friend during seminary, and, and then when I first moved to Duke, another close African friend that kind of, well, I, I enjoyed having African friends. <laughs> and one of my friends was named Medine Musunga, and Medine was from Congo, Brazzaville. And very hospitably, she invited me to come visit her country, and she would translate for me if I preached there and so on um, into into French or maybe some local dialects as well. And we got to be really good friends. She was, she was doing her Ph.D. at the University of Paris, but she was visiting uh, as an exchange student at Duke for about eight months. We met through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and she was actually writing her, her thesis on uh, African-American women during a certain period in U.S. history in a certain region, so she had to come do research. And she went back to, to finish her Ph.D. We kept in touch over the years, and then she was getting ready to go back to Congo, but there was a civil war going on, and so I tried to persuade her not to go back. By that time, I was teaching in the U.S. I tried to find a place, said, I'll, I'll try to find you a place here where you can you can work until the until the war ends. At the time, we also briefly 
broached the issue of marriage because we really were fond of each other. But, you know, I felt like nobody would be able to understand me well enough to live with me unless they shared my same passion for, for God's Word and for spreading God's Word. And so I, I asked her if she was called to ministry, and she said no. Now, meanwhile, she was on the leadership team of a church that she helped plant. She was doing open-air evangelism in France. She was sharing Christ in Muslim neighborhoods. She was helping people get off drugs. She was doing all this stuff, but she said she wasn't in ministry. It was a, it was a question of definition. But I kind of said, well, you know, if she's not called to ministry— I didn't know about, I didn't understand about all the other stuff. So I said, well, she probably wouldn't, this probably wouldn't work in the long run. So uh, I kind of canned that and said, we won't, we won't go there. One thing Maydeen didn't tell me, she said she needed to go back to Congo. She didn't tell me that in her culture, it wasn't considered appropriate for a woman to share her interest in a man, which was different than what I was familiar with. And I thought we both could talk about it, but, and she still loved me. And so... She didn't want to come because she didn't want to be with me having all those feelings in her heart. And that that was one of the reasons that she chose to go back to Congo. She eventually was caught up in the civil war there. She she had to flee from the capital. uh, And then later, she was with her family. She had to flee again. I got a letter from her, and I was always happy to get letters from her until I opened this one. She said her cousin had just been shot dead. Her, Her brother and her father had nearly been shot dead. Troops were closing in on her town. She didn't know if she was going to live or die, and she asked me to pray for her. And so I, I did. I, I was praying for her more than any, anything. For the next 18 months, I didn't know if she was alive or dead. She and her mother and sisters had to put their father into a wheelbarrow. He was disabled because otherwise they couldn't have left the, the city. And they pushed him into the forest and became refugees for 18 months as the town was burning behind them. And she often had to walk 10, 20 miles a day through snake-infested swamps and fields covered with army ants, uh, picking them off her body after she got through just to get food for her family. And at any given time, somebody in the family was close to death. The Lord spared them all. But when they got back, uh, when the war ended, and they got back and the you know, the father's life savings, everything had been invested in his house and it had been destroyed. And and they were afraid of how he was going to respond. He was disabled from a stroke and they were afraid how he would respond when he saw the house. And when they got there, he was quiet for about a minute. And then he said, let's thank God because we're all alive. And out of that experience, the two of you eventually were married. Yes, we've been married now 12 years. Yeah, and have two children, I think. Yes. Yes. And we should say, while we're still talking about uh, Medine, that uh, she has a a position at Asbury Theological Seminary. Could you say a word about that? Sure. She works in the Family Formation Office at Asbury. And actually, um, I really loved where I was teaching before, but that was one of the reasons we we moved was so that she could have uh, a, a position that was more satisfying to her as well. What a wonderful, uh, painful, dramatic story of how God has worked in your life and hers and your family's life to bring you where you are today. I wonder if you would say a little bit about your your biblical scholarship. What is your deepest motivation for studying the Bible at such a serious level? I mean, with with all the training you've had, you're, you're writing commentaries, you're speaking, you're teaching, 
What is it about the Bible that you want to get out to other people? It's God's Word. There's, there's nothing that can replace that. And so I devote myself to it. I love it. In fact, the, the day the Lord called me, there was a verse that came with it, Psalm 119, 161. Princes have persecuted me without a cause, but my heart stands in awe of your word. I love studying the ancient background. You know, I was doing some of that before I was a Christian, not for the Bible, but just because I loved studying antiquity. But I, I love studying the background. It brings the Bible more alive when I read it. But the life isn't in the background. The, the life is in, is in the Bible. The Spirit speaks in a special way through that. And I'm not one of the people to say that's obviously the only way that the Spirit speaks. It, can I share something about oh. my wife's experience in Congo? Sure. There were three people on different occasions who didn't know each other, and one of them actually was another refugee in the forest who prophesied to her that she was going to marry a white man with a big ministry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've had things like that, you know, and they they didn't know who I was. There weren't there were hardly any white people there. I wasn't there, uh, but but there have been occasions like that. But the one thing, that, that it's it's the canon. It's the measuring stick for all other claims to hear from God, to make sure that we're hearing in the right way. That it's the it's the foundation for everything else, is is the scripture. God wouldn't say something that's contradictory to what He's already said. You know, if we if we follow what he's already said, that's how we learn to discern his voice. And so, um, the scriptures are are full of life. Say a word about how the word, the scripture, the Bible relates to the Holy Spirit. Word and spirit. I mean, that's such an important uh, pairing yes. of things. Talk about that. Sometimes the church is divided on that. You know, like different individuals have different gifts. I think sometimes different parts of the church have different gifts. And if we would humble ourselves and learn from one another, we could do a lot more. I mean, there's some parts of the church that emphasize spiritual experience at the expense of grounding in Scripture. And there's some parts that emphasize intellectual study of Scripture. But if you really read Scripture, it talks all over the place about spiritual experience. And we need to, with those and other issues, we need to learn from one another. We need to bring those together. In, in all my years... As a Christian, I've only ever met one person who did this, but um, there was one one person I knew. She was having visions, and you know, she was hearing from the Lord. I actually was quite jealous of her as a young Christian. But she told me she didn't need to read the Bible because, you know, uh, they heard from God, but she heard from God. Why did she need to hear somebody else's hearing from God? And predictably, she eventually ended up in error. She did recognize the error and come out of it. But God gave us a canon for a reason. We need the objective. We also need the subjective. Some of us are stronger in one or the other. But, you know, in Jeremiah's day, there were a lot of prophets. Hmm. And most of them were saying what wasn't true. Jeremiah spoke the truth. Jerusalem's going to fall. Judah's going to be taken into captivity. And after it all happened, guess whose book they knew should make it into the Bible? <laughs> So we, we have what's been tested that we can stand on. At the same time, Scripture bears witness to the experience of the Spirit, and so we can't really embrace the message of Scripture without that. One of the earliest Pentecostal leaders, the only thing he ever read was the Bible. Uh, he, he wasn't known for being an intellectual, but he was 
he was so excited about the outpouring of the Spirit and the things that God were doing in that revival. But toward the end of his life, he became disillusioned with it. I mean, he was still part of it, but he said, this isn't doing it. It's not doing it enough. And he said that someday there's going to come a revival that brings together the Spirit and the Word. And when that happens, that'll be a revival like the word is never, the world has never seen before. Mm-hmm. And if we can bring together, say, the strengths of, of, the, of the Reformers, the strengths of some historic streams of evangelicalism with the strengths of the spiritual renewal that's going on around the world, in some places this is happening, if we can bring mm-hmm. together those strengths and, and bring together the, the insights of the different churches, there's so much that God will do. Yeah. One of your books is called Miracles, and here in Birmingham, you and Dr. Gary Habermas have engaged in a public symposium on the question of miracles, one held here at Beeson, I think another one in a local church. Uh, Say a little bit about miracles and why that's an important issue and what your take is on miracles. You know, in the, of course, in the Pentecostal tradition, people talk a lot about it, and in, in principle, I believed in it. But just because you have experience with one gift doesn't mean you have much experience with some others. And I, in principle, believed in it. But after going through so much, so much rigorous intellectual training and laying so much of an emphasis on that, and that's a gift too, but after so much of that, you know, I had imbibed some of the traditional Western philosophic skepticism that goes back to Hume and Strauss and others. So I, in principle, believed in it. But when I was working on historical Jesus studies, and then I'm getting ready to write a commentary on Acts. One of the issues that comes up in terms of historical reliability is all these claims about miracles. David Strauss in the the 19th century said, well, we know that this would not come from eyewitnesses. This is obviously legendary accretion. It comes from generations of these traditions building up. Ironically, someone that David Strauss knew was was disabled, unable to walk, and was prayed for by a German Lutheran pastor by the name of Johann Christoph Blumhardt, and the man was healed. Well, Strauss dismissed that as psychosomatic, but interestingly enough, he did not say that it was a legend that developed over generations that an eyewitness couldn't have said it because he himself was a witness that his friend could now walk. And so he wasn't consistent with that. And so... Part of my response was going to be simply to say, you can't say that eyewitnesses can't say things like this because we've got hundreds of examples of eyewitnesses making such claims today. I was going to just find a couple books that documented a large number of these claims. Well, at the beginning, I didn't find the books I was looking for, and so I just was doing individual reports, eyewitness reports that I I was uh, citing. And the footnote grew and grew, and after it was about 100 pages and obviously no longer a footnote, I decided it probably should be a separate book. And, you know, eventually it grew into over 1,000 pages. But there was a Pew Forum study done, I believe it was 2006. It was fairly recent uh, in, the, in the past uh, 10 years or so. It was a study of Pentecostals and Charismatics in 10 countries. In those 10 countries alone, and among Pentecostals and Charismatics in those countries alone, there were an estimated 200 million people who claimed to have witnessed divine healing. And what is particularly interesting is that among those who didn't claim to be Pentecostal or Charismatic, about 39% of those Christians in those 10 countries alone, I mean overall, claimed to have witnessed divine healing. So we're talking about hundreds of millions of people. Now the issue isn't 
how many of those actually are miracles? Because I don't think any of us would say every one of them actually was a miracle, that somebody you know, would interpret that way. And yet, what it does show is you can't simply start with the premise that, that eyewitnesses never claim these things. And when I began interviewing people that I knew and, and eventually finding some books with medical documentation and uh, other, other sources with medical documentation, I was astonished. People that I knew, from people that I, I knew well and trusted personally, I got 10 eyewitness accounts of people being raised from the dead. Most of these were in Africa. The one that struck me the most, it's not by any means the most dramatic, but the one that struck me the most was from Antoinette Malombe, who said that she... Uh, she heard her, her two-year-old daughter cry out that she was bitten by a snake. She got to her, found her not breathing. There was no medical help available in the village, so she strapped her to her back, ran to a nearby village where a family friend was doing ministry. The friend prayed, and the child started breathing again, and the next day she was fine, and now she's grown up. She has a master's degree. There was no brain damage. So I asked, how long was this? And she had to stop and think, you know, to get from one village to the other. She said about three hours. As far as she could tell, the child wasn't breathing for three hours. And, you know, six minutes with no oxygen, you have irreparable brain damage. This one touched me the most because my informant was my mother-in-law and the person who was raised was my sister-in-law. And other members of the family also had their own uh, accounts of why they're alive due due to God acting. Greg, let me ask you this question. You've, you've openly shared about your experience uh, uh, in the Pentecostal tradition, the gifts of the Spirit, uh, speaking in tongues. You know, around these kinds of issues, there's been lots of conflict, even division, even among evangelical Bible-believing people. Is this an issue in which we have to divide, or is there a way we can affirm the oneness we have in Jesus Christ while differing perhaps on some of these matters. Talk about that question of unity, conflict around the charismata. Technically, all believers are charismatic in the sense that we are the body of Christ, one body with many members, and God has given each of us gifts. Now, there are some people who aren't open to certain gifts, and they still have their own gifts, and we can learn from them. And then there are people who are open to gifts, but they don't necessarily have... We don't all have the same gifts. Uh, And Paul is very clear on that point. And even some of the passages that have been used in Acts to imply otherwise, I I don't think that that's the best way to read them. But we all have gifts, and we can learn from one another. We can be edified by one another. I, I could address the theological issue of cessationism versus continuationism. But in terms of, you know, looking down on one another's gifts... That's really arrogance. And it can be different gifts. I mean, people do it with tongues. 1 Corinthians 14 addresses that pretty strongly. And yet, um, people also do it with knowledge. Some who have that gift, um, certain traditions really emphasize that and are very proud of that. And yet, 1 Corinthians 8.1, Paul has to correct that. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. But ultimately, we're united by the most important things. Even the miracles in the Gospels, I mean, the miracles in the Gospels are samples of the kingdom. They're not the fullness of the kingdom. They they didn't wipe away all suffering in the world. But they're signs of a time that's coming when there will be no more tears, when there will be no more suffering, when the kingdom will come in, in all of its fullness. 
they're, they're reminders of hope in the midst of this world of suffering. And the deepest sign is the message of the cross. Because in the cross, we learn that in the midst of the deepest suffering, in the midst of the deepest injustice, God is still at work to bring about his purposes and ultimately the, the resurrection. My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Craig S. Keener. He is professor of New Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary. Thank you, Craig, for this wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. It's been my privilege. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.